Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. And today's guest really needs no introduction. It's 1-800-GOT-JUNK founder Brian Scudamore. Known for pioneering the professional junk hauling industry, Brian has also added brands in the painting, moving, and home detailing industries. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Inc. Magazine, among others. And in this early, very raw, unedited conversation, Brian shares openly about his life of entrepreneurship, discussing how he convinced his father that dropping out of school to start a junk business was a good idea, why hiring an ex-Starbucks executive actually turned out to be a huge failure, and so much more. Brian and I recorded this one one-on-one over Skype in late 2017 before this was actually a podcast, so please excuse the poor audio quality. And with that out of the way, here is my great chat with Brian Scudamore. So 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which has been around now for 28 years, and the other Mm -hmm. three businesses under the O2E brands umbrella, which O2E stands for Ordinary to Exceptional have all been around from anywhere from two years to six years. Yeah. So besides the 1-800-GOT-JUNK, um, can you describe the other businesses? Yeah. So created 1-800-GOT-JUNK, taking the ordinary business of junk removal and making it exceptional through customer experience, and then realized that, hey, we're onto something here. We've figured out a formula of finding great franchise partners, people that want to build businesses with us. And we recruited a bunch of great people in other home services. And so the other services, wow, one day painting, we go in and paint people's homes in a day. There's no compromise on quality. We just, it's a numbers game. We put enough people in a home to get that home painted in a day versus taking the two to three weeks that might typically happen. Mm -hmm. We have You Move Me, which is a moving business. We do local moves only. We're in about 40 markets across North America. We move people, not just their boxes, which means that it's a customer service-based brand. And then our our newest baby in the the family, so to speak, is Shack Shine, which has been around for a couple of years. Shack Shine is windows, gutters, power washing. We are creating uh, an an exceptional experience within the what we call the house detailing space. Yeah, so um, I definitely want to dig into the 1-800-GOT-JUNK history in that, but I will ask you about these these other home services businesses first. So what what besides the fact that they're all in the home service space, what sort of criteria do you apply when looking at what new businesses to introduce and what to work on? It's really finding fragmented businesses, very mom-and-pop-driven spaces with no coordinated brand, no national exposure, and really finding awesome, happy, hands-on, hardworking franchise partners that are able to build something with us. So it has to be a business that would exist in most major metros across North America. So snow removal is not on our targeted list, Mm -hmm. nor is uh, pool servicing, for example. So something that we can really coordinate across North America, the obvious ones that, that we're in. And I'm sure one day when we, when we're at 10 brands, there'll be a lot more uh, in the space, such as probably carpet removal and landscaping and lawn care, and who knows what is next. We're, we've got our hands busy with four brands, but I think the obvious categories are ones that are in-home services that have a potential to be branded and that have the bar 
being set so low in a space of home service, people generally don't get great home service with any service provider that comes in. And I've always been a fan of businesses that excel with service. So Starbucks, for example, I'm always impressed with how quick the drink comes out. Starbucks is a model where everybody's got their unique recipe of the type of drink that they often get. And so mine is a grande Americano with room and, you know, I go in and they, it's always quick with a smile. People make, uh, you know, they'll socialize with you. And I just, I've always loved the customer experience of Starbucks. So when I got out and created 1-800-GOD-JUNK, I think it was in my blood that I just wanted to deliver great experiences to people. And it was little things like you'd show up on the doorstep and you'd introduce yourself by name. You'd shake the customer's hand, you'd build rapport and comment on their home and, it was those little things, the sweep up at the end of the job so that they didn't have to do it. Those little things were really the core of, of 1-800-GOD-JUNK and what we were about. And so it really wasn't about junk removal. It just happened to be the first business we tackled. It was really about taking something ordinary where people's expectations were so low and making that experience exceptional. Was this an instinctive thing? Was this a business that you or a category that you had been you know, analyzing or, or tracking. Um, how did you get into it early on? I've always been a fan of entrepreneurship. My grandparents had an army surplus store in San Francisco that I would work at every summer vacation, Christmas holiday. I got the bug of wanting to run a business from them. And when I was one course short of graduation from high school, I just was never a great student. I moved from school to school, class to class. And I was in a McDonald's drive-thru trying to contemplate my future and following all my friends into university, even though I wasn't a high school grad. And I knew that I had to pay my own way if I was going to go to college. And so I saw this beautiful pickup truck. It said Mark's Hauling on the side. I looked at the truck and I was like, yeah, that's the moment. I'm going to go out and buy a truck of my own. Within a week, I took my $700, bought a pickup truck, Ford F-150, built plywood sides on the box. And started hauling junk and, and the rest is history. I mean, what ultimately funded my way through college inspired me to drop out a year before the completion of my degree because I was just learning much more about business by running a business more so than studying in school. I didn't love school. Just, I love learning. I'm just not a great person at following the, the structures of sitting in a classroom and being told what to learn. I'd rather get out and talk to entrepreneurs, talk to people in life. My family and I, we just did a trip to India. And it's amazing how much you can learn by traveling and talking to different people versus studying in books and sitting in the classroom. Now, if someone wants to be a doctor, yeah, like my dad, he's a liver transplant surgeon and respect and admire his career choices. But if someone's going down that path, they've got to obviously sit in a classroom and go to school. I just think for entrepreneurs, the best way to learn is outside the classroom from others. Yeah. So, so you mentioned your father. Uh, he was obviously an academic, probably a very smart guy, did a ton of studying um, to get where he, he, he is. What, did you have a conversation about your intention to drop out of school and, and how did he react to that? I sat him down and I said, dad, I've got uh, some good news for you. I'm dropping out of university. And of course, he said, I fail to see how that's good news. And I said, well, it's an opportunity. I can build this business that I've been successful with and, and really make it grow. And he didn't see it the same way I did. And I probably was trying to sell him on the fact that I knew he was going to 
not agree with my decision to drop out, but you know, 15 years later, whatever it took, we, we certainly saw eye to eye and he realized that Brian doesn't always think the same way that he does, but uh, as an entrepreneur, he's, he's made the business a success and he's got hundreds of other entrepreneurially minded people involved in the business and he he's doing something great. So it, it took my dad time to see that my decision would ultimately pay off. But like any father, I think he was probably worried that, you know, what's my kid doing here, dropping out of college to become a junk man. It, it didn't seem on the surface to be a good uh, and smart decision. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, did he support you through this process? Did you have to bootstrap this all yourself? Was he kind of taking a backseat and watching what that looked like? I, I bootstrapped it myself. And I think the way my dad grew up, he's got a great work ethic and, and did everything on his own. And he, he was probably there for me emotionally. And when I had questions, he would be there, but financially it was my own deal. And he, he, he let me succeed on my own. And it was just you right in the early days. It was just me. I, a couple of years into the business, I was out in Montreal going to school I was learning how to speak French. I ended up bringing on a partner who was basically a, a best friend that I'd met out in Montreal. And I said, hey, why don't we spend the summer in Vancouver? We can restart my business. We, it was just a summer business at the time. And I said, why don't we start what was called the Rubbish Boys? And let's see if we can uh, have some fun together. And, and we did. But ultimately, my goals and ambitions were different than his. And so I bought him out. Uh, it, you know, I'd essentially given him 50% of the business and said, hey, come on in, be a partner. Not a great decision in in hindsight, just in, in that, you know, I gave it to him, a business that I'd started. But we did have fun together. Really, as an entrepreneur, I think what entrepreneurs do is they often need or or want someone to do something with them because mm-hmm. there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear in jumping off that ledge of entrepreneurship. And so I wanted some camaraderie and and that's the role that my, my partner played. And it, it was just, it was fun. It was nice having a buddy there by my side to then give me some confidence to then be able to do this completely on my own. I bought him out in 1993 and it wasn't mm-hmm. until about 2001 or 2002. So maybe eight or nine years later before I brought in a, uh, a COO, a friend from EO, the entrepreneur organization, Cameron Harold. Mm-hmm. Who, who was in my forum. And we had developed a business relationship and a friendship at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I respected his franchise experience that he'd had from college pro painters and a whole bunch of different things. And, and he came in as a consultant to help me short term between gigs that he was doing. And ultimately, that relationship turned into Six or seven years of uh, growing from, I think with Cameron, we grew from 2 million to 106 million. And we were two entrepreneurs that were very fire ready aim right at the top. And it it worked for the first stage of the business, but it wasn't going to work past 100 million. We started to see cracks in the foundation that we were both causing from being two ADD types that were just shooting from the hip. And we were cowboys in in uh, building the business, and we needed some more professional management. So Cameron and I had to have the discussion about making a change. We're still great friends today. I talked to him yesterday, in fact. So it, it all turned out well for both of us. Uh, grateful that Cameron got us to the hundred million mark. And then I uh, ended up meeting a guy years later, Eric Church, 
who would become our third COO, Cameron being the first. Mm-hmm. I had one in between, which was a big failure. Uh, I learned from that. And then uh, Eric Church came in and we've been working six years together. And I would I would think that both of us would agree that we hope to work together forever because it is uh, it's going phenomenally well. And so taking a business from $100 million, uh, after Cameron to today, we will finish this year at $400 million Canadian. And, uh, you know, great growth, great leadership from Eric. And he is the, we call it the two in the box model where I'm the visionary, a bit of strategy, a lot of culture. And then what Eric does is the rigor, the discipline, building the team, the execution. And that two in the box model is hyper, hyper successful for us. I just want to go back to Cameron for one second. So you mentioned that going from two to 106 million, you know, that's, that's tremendous growth uh, and, and success. And, and you guys are good friends. Uh, you have a history together. How did you know that that wasn't the relationship to take the business from, say, 106 to 200 or whatever the next milestone was? We started making mistakes, financial mistakes, overspending in areas, not having the rigor in the decision-making process where we would on a whim say, oh, this would be a great idea. Let's go do this. And we'd put a whole ton of money after something that ended up failing, which I think under the right leadership could have been a great success. So again, I don't blame Cameron. I don't blame myself. I blame the two of us together, having not had the the processes, the discipline in place to make some decisions. If I contrast between Eric, I'll tell Eric, you know, I got a great idea. And he'll say, okay, let's sit down and talk about that. Let's, let's talk about that again in a month. Let's see if it's still a great idea. Let's get some other people involved. Let's put, so it's not an overwhelming amount of process, but it's just thinking things through because we're not this little speedboat anymore. We're a, a, a big cruise ship that doesn't just turn on a dime and you need to think with great intent. We just started to see that mistakes were being made by both of us the business was starting to to hurt in some areas. And it was clear, I, I had a leadership team of people that Cameron helped recruit, which ultimately started giving feedback to both of us that this wasn't working any longer. We had a CFO, we had some more professional management, we had a head of, of our people department telling us that there were issues and that they needed to be dealt with. We had a board of advisors at the time and they were starting to to notice that there were issues. So it got highlighted by others, and it was a conversation that Cameron and I had to have, and it was a, a tough conversation ending a relationship of great growth at a time when it feels like we're at you know uh, a peak of continued growth. But I I knew in my gut that it wasn't going to work longer term, and that we needed that professional management. Right, and then and then you mentioned that before Eric came on board, you had this. Um... This is COO in between. Uh, did you have to let he or she go as well? Yeah. So she was someone who I brought on. I recruited from Starbucks. This was someone that wanted to relocate from Seattle back to Canada, where she was from. And uh-huh. very smart, driven person. She was the professional manager that I was looking for. However, the thing that was missing was. I think I was too enamored by her pedigree of what she had built as a as a ex president of the U.S. operations of Starbucks, and we just didn't see eye to eye to eye on entrepreneurship. 
you know, we weren't fighting, we weren't having all these issues together, but the 14 months of us working together, we just did things so differently. And I think that there was a, a missing belief in entrepreneurship and the, 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 the role of an entrepreneur. So what Eric gets in me is he understands, hey, Brian's an entrepreneur. He thinks differently. He's got some great ideas. He's got some awful ideas, but let's communicate. Let's talk and work through them. And it really was, or is, sorry, Eric and I, a, a relationship that's about partnership. And so what was missing in the Starbucks uh, leadership deal was that I don't think there was truly a belief in each other. I think I might have believed in my COO, but I don't think my COO really believed in, in me and entrepreneurship. And it's interesting because when Eric came on board, he didn't realize this. But one of the things that I pointed out learning about his history is I said, you have always worked with an entrepreneur. You have always been the executor with an entrepreneur. And I think that his love for working with entrepreneurs and his understanding, getting the differences between entrepreneurs and other leaders it is it was a real gift and and it was something that certainly helped make the two of us very successful as a team so how how long was that journey between the the, the time that you had fired that's that um the ceo from starbucks and the time that you had found eric it was i think a little over a year somewhere around 13 14 months and it was it was painful because when the starbucks uh gal was gone what happened was I had people in my business just thinking I was crazy. My franchise partners, my leadership team, we had to lay mm -hmm. a lot of people off because it was the financial meltdown of 2008. And it was really, the business was in rough shape. And so laying people off, not having that leadership and people questioning my leadership. And, and I knew they were right. I knew I wasn't the leader to take it to the next level. I had to hold people over for some time to, to say, Hey, listen, like things are going to be okay here. We're going to find the right leader. Trust me, stick with me. And most of my team did. And were you, I mean, were you confident with yourself at that point? Like, was there some negative self-talk going on? Like, what was that process like emotionally for you? Yeah, I wasn't confident, was having a hard time believing that there was light at the end of the tunnel and that this was really going to work out. But I, I I had, you know, I only had myself to count on at that point. I didn't have people following me and believing that it would necessarily work out. I think it was more they were hoping, but treated people right when we let people go and promised that we'd find the right person. And it took a lot of hard work and a lot of traveling all over North America to interview COO after COO. But what I'd learned from the Starbucks failure was finding the right person for me was going to be key. So it wasn't just finding the right COO with those skills. It was finding the COO that had the skills, the rigor and discipline to execute, but that also had the personality fit and the belief in entrepreneurs that would make the difference. I, I've got unique abilities and strengths as any entrepreneur might. I've got an awful lot of weaknesses. It was finding the right person who could really work with me together to leverage my strengths and really continue to grow the business. Eric built a great team of leaders from our CFO and head of marketing and head of franchise development. He's been able to, to recruit people who see the vision, but are also able to execute with his guidance and, and uh, help developing them as, as leaders. Earlier on, you, you talked about the, the happy, the hardworking, 
I think you've got this uh, this other philosophy of bringing on people with with four H's or something like that. Do I have that right? Yeah. So pe- so the four H's is when we're looking for franchise owners, they are typically hands on, hardworking, happy, and hungry. We're looking for people with positive, optimistic outlooks in life. We're looking for people that don't mind rolling up their sleeves. Our successful, our most successful one eight hundred got junk franchise partners spent six months to a year in the trucks, understanding the business, mastering the operations before trying to build and lead a team that would allow them to scale a business. So if I think of Paul Guy in Toronto, our longest running and most successful franchise partner, he'll do 10 million uh, or more actually this year in revenue in Toronto. And it's because he understood the business and every aspect of it before trying to scale. This isn't a, our franchise model works most successfully when people don't come in as an investor type model, but they come in as a, an owner operator wanting to, to grow out of that role. And, uh, but, but the bottom is where they've got to start. It's where I started. And that's where everyone's got to start is understanding the business, getting it successful uh, at a small level, and then being able to scale through great people. So Paul Guy, lived in Vancouver. He was running our Vancouver operations. He had a girlfriend in Toronto that he was visiting constantly. And I said, hey, why don't you start the first franchise? You could start it up in Toronto, go be with your girlfriend, who's now his wife. And he he drove a truck from Vancouver to Toronto and started the business. So like me, he started with nothing, built up a business that organically just grew and and, and took off. And so he became the person that people would follow saying, hey, I want to do what Paul's doing. And I think he's just been so exceptional in his ability to find great people and develop them that that's been, that's been the key to, to his success. So while there are bigger markets in the United States, he, he was first and he's got time under his belt of you know uh, several years of uh, head start over our other uh, large American franchise owners. Yeah. So is, is, is he instrumental in helping with expansion across different markets, new markets, new cities? I think he's instrumental in the expansion in the sense that he was the first follower. He mm. was the pe- person that people look to to decide, hey, is this for me? Do I want to be like Paul Guy? Do I want to grow a business and uh, look at the forerunner and say, hey, can I do what Paul's doing? So how many cities um, across North America are you guys operating in today? We're in every major metro across Canada, the United States, and Australia with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And then our other brands, Wow One Day Painting, You Move Me, and Shack Shine, they are scattered across Canada and the United States with lots and lots of potential to continue to grow. Where, where are you at personally now? Like, What's your, daily, your typical daily routine look like? Are you... Um, are you up early? Are you in the office early? Yeah, I'm an early riser. I was up at uh, 525 this morning. And I like to go through emails and read and catch up on stuff early in the morning so that I've got my days free to have meetings, conversations, and so on. My, my structure is basically Monday is a day out of the office. I'll often work at a coffee shop, so I'll go from coffee shop to coffee shop where I'm not getting distracted by the people in my office. And and when I say distracted by them, it's more me going around and talking to people and and socializing and you know doing what I do. But 
Monday's my day to catch up and really get organized for the week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in the office and I'm back to back literally with, with meetings. I mean, my schedule is absolutely jammed. And then mm-hmm. Friday is my free day. And that's my day to get away from business, to recharge, whether it's time with the family or a ski day, a road bike day, whatever it might be. It's my chance to just have fun and, and not focus on work. So that schedule works for me. That schedule allows me to go hard Monday to Thursday and take a break on Friday. And uh, I get lots done. I'm highly effective. And I've, I've figured out what works for me. And then, of course, getting exercise in there, which is incredibly important. I just dislocated my shoulder about a month ago, so I've, uh, mm. I haven't been to the gym uh, lately, and I'm working on fixing that, but, uh, but I'm missing the gym, and the gym would usually be a, a two-day-a-week early morning deal for, for me. I'm up at uh, 4.30 in the morning on, on a Tuesday and Thursday off to the gym with a partner and a trainer, and then trying to do other active stuff during the week, whether it's skiing or biking, just to, to stay fit. And I guess weekends is, is also family time for you? Yeah, so weekends, I'm not on email. I, I stay away from business, and I, I expect my team to do the same. Mm-hmm. They don't always do that. You know, I think we're in a very connected world where people find it hard to shut off, and, and I do myself find that difficult at times. So if I'm on a vacation, as I was in India, we were working with the Midui Foundation to help build a school in India. And touring the country a little bit with our, our family. And in situations like that, whenever I'm taking a vacation, I, I, I do what I call uh, go dark. I get my assistant to change my passcode to my email and all my social media. I can't access it and I'm, I'm locked out. But what it does is it frees my brain from any of the worries about business. And we get our teams to do the same thing. So a lot of driven type A people in our business who who want to stay connected, we've been able to show them that you you need to recharge, you need to spend time with family, and you need to have someone else in place like I have Eric and Eric has me. You've got to have a backup. You have to have somebody who can run your department or your job so that you can go dark. And we do get our people to work hard at doing that. Over the weekend, do you have to turn off email? Like, How do you control the inbound noise when you're freezing on Friday, Saturday, Sunday with your family? Yeah, I'm, I'm good at at not checking my email every single day on, on a weekend. I, I don't actually change my passcode every weekend. I've just gotten disciplined to know that I don't want to check email on the weekend. I, I don't want my kids seeing me on my, on my iPhone 24-7. I want them seeing me engaged with them. As a family, we're great at doing a lot of stuff outdoors, getting on the bikes, going down to the beach. And those things naturally take us away from screen time. So I've got a friend, for example, who's an entrepreneur who's got four young kids. And he and his wife in Dallas have a basket at the door that everyone puts their devices into when they come home. And mm. that's extreme, but it, you know, and it works for them. They're able to connect at dinner. They're able to, you know, so I think rules can be great, but I also think it's just how do you stay busy with other activities that don't involve screens? I think that's been the key for us. What's the one thing you do now uh, that your 10-year-old self would have never expected doing? For me, it's a gratitude practice. It's often before I'm going to bed or at a time when I just need to take a moment to to be thankful and appreciate my life and, and all that I have is 
is running through a list of the 10 things I'm most grateful for. So for me, I don't have trouble sleeping, but one of the best ways for me to fall asleep that I enjoy the most is, is that gratitude moment of just going, okay, 10 things. What am I most grateful for from today? And it could be something very general like my health. It could be something very specific, like a conversation I had with someone that I found very meaningful. Um, it could be a, a goal that a franchise partner hit that I felt that I shared some some little bit of uh, contribution towards. So whatever I'm grateful for, that seems to be a practice that I, I certainly wouldn't have thought about at a younger age. This has been a great chat. I, I really thank you, Brian. Yeah, no, thank you, Adam. I've enjoyed it. And you've asked some great questions that have got me thinking. So I appreciate I appreciate that. It's nice to reflect on on where I've come from and some of the challenges I've had along the way and thinking forward of uh, where we're going as well. Well, congratulations on all your successes, uh, both in your personal life and your business life. Uh, I wish you the best. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Brian. Talk soon. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric Acid.